0: Good morning, family. My name is Colton, and I'll have the, I have the pleasure of reading our passage this morning. Um, so if you would turn with me to John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52, uh, for our worship through Word this morning. It'll be found on page 840 of your Pew Bible. It'll be on the screen as well. John chapter 7, starting in verse 40 through 52. The officers came, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Church, this is God's word. Thanks be to God for it.
1: Well, I want to begin by mentioning two things, and and just bear with me a few minutes. They're going to take a few minutes, and then we'll pray and get into the sermon. Nothing's wrong, but just helpful to have a heads up of some things happening at church. First, we put in the bulletin that we have a congregational meeting on June 4th. At that meeting, we hope to affirm two things, a new church treasurer and a new pastor elder here at the church. And we hope, I hope, uh, that Matt Wilson, a longtime member, uh, will begin the deacon role of treasurer. It's a role that Tom Gwynn has um, held for a long and very faithful stretch. And I was just thinking about this this morning. Ha- um, he went through multiple steps. So you, you think about being the treasurer and the finest guy. Multiple staff transitions. In fact, all of them except for me. <laughs> Which I hope that doesn't mean more than it sounds. Um, Selling buildings, two buildings, buying this building and renovating it, fundraising for a church plant, and all of covid <laughs> that 's been tom 's seven or eight years of being the treasurer and he 's been very faithful and i 'm very thankful for the race he 's run and that he might get a break here uh, with Matt taking over because the new pastor elder will be a full time staff member i 'm guessing i 'm guessing you would like to hear a little bit more about that so Let me just give a little bit more than a quick sentence or two. In light of the church plant, we had been talking for a long time about potentially hiring another person here at the church, and we advertised that role starting in January, and for the last several months, a search team, along with the pastor elders to some degree, have been collecting resumes and interviewing candidates, and almost 50 pastors applied a few weeks ago, we began narrowing the search to one pastor named Ron Smith. Uh, you don't know Ron, probably, unless you're on the search team or one of the pastor elders or on staff, um, but I'd like to tell you about him a lot more in the next coming weeks. I'm not going to do all of that right now, but just so you can get to know him a little bit, we'll be giving information you can read about him, we'll be giving a sermon that you can watch, um, others that you can listen to, um, the audio of, we'll give you opportunities from the pastoral search team to hear from them what they saw in this pastor named Ron and why we think he'd be a good fit for our membership to call him here to pastor but we're not gonna do all that now but now I do want to just give you a little bit about him Um, we have been looking for someone who could be an associate pastor here preach well and lead well lead well among the staff among the elders among the church and we think Ron would do this well he's he's almost 50 years old He just celebrated his 25th wedding anniversary. He has four children. The youngest is heading to college in the fall, and um, he's from South Carolina. His wife has roots in Philly, Um, but together as a family, he has been a church-planning missionary in northern Italy for the last many years, and so there's a lot in there that is probably intriguing or strange or wonderful, Um, but, but he's... It, 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 I think it could be a very good fit for us. Most importantly, he loves Jesus, the local church, and pastoring. So the second thing I wanted to mention, I had two announcements, So that more on Ron later, um, would just be about the preaching here. We, we we're in John chapter 8. We've, as Scott said, moved back to our preaching through the gospel of John. And next week we're going to be in chapter 8. And there's this famous pa- Bible passage about a woman caught in adultery Jesus writing on the ground and then speaking the words, uh, you who are without sin, throw the first stone. Right, they're, they're famous words, even to those many, of those who are not even in, regularly involved in the church. Now, I called it a Bible passage that Ben's going to be preaching, but there is some question about that. You'll see if you're looking in the pew Bibles, it's got giant brackets and these sentences around it. Uh, I just wanted to flag that for you now that we know that there's all sorts of issues about that passage, and I have confidence Ben will lead us through that discussion really well, Um, and the sermon will be a blessing to us. So with all that in mind, let's turn our attention back to John's Gospel, and would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would be utterly astounded by your word. That, that your speaking, even as we were singing and praying, saying, speak, O Lord, that your speaking to us from your word would not become something we're so familiar with. That we're no longer interested, that we, that we treat so casually that it's no longer riveting to us. Lord, would you shape us into your image. This morning we pray in Christ's name, amen. We have this expression in culture about getting your hand um, caught in the cookie jar, right? It's a phrase we have, hand caught in a cookie jar. And the person may have various reasons for doing what they're doing. Oh, it, it only looked like I was stealing a cookie. In fact, I was cleaning the jar, right? Well, where are the cleaning supplies, we might say. Well, I had to take the cookies out first and I thought I should, you know, as I'm taking the cookies out and cleaning the jars, just test them to see that they're not stale and have expired and would get anyone sick and I felt like I was a good person to do that sort of thing. To those watching from the outside, that situation, it would seem pretty clear that the person was really doing what they really wanted to do and then only later making up reasons. Now in our passage this morning that Colton read, there's no cookie jar. But we do see in this passage that when you choose to suppress the truth, we end up in all sorts of contradictions. But we'll also see that when we embrace truth, even when it's costly, you end up with freedom. I'll show you what I mean For context, in John 7, I'll say Jesus had been up north, but he had traveled down to Jerusalem, and there's been this confusion about him, even what the passage calls division, verse 43. In other words, Jesus is not merely polarizing as though, okay, there's Jesus and there's two two, two views about him. It's not polarizing merely. There is division, lots of them. There's lots of different understandings about who Jesus is and what we should do with them. And if that was true then, it's still true today. Let me reread verse 40 to 44. When they heard these words Jesus had been speaking, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? That's up north. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Clearly, again, we we see this division. It's not just polarizing, it's division. People are all over the map. People were, were trying to wrestle with truth and the implications of that truth. And there's this confusion about the origins of Jesus, where he was born. We, we, we sing at Christmas time, right, oh little town of Bethlehem, because the origins of Jesus matter. According to many scripture passages, Jesus was supposed to come and did come from the family line of King David, but those are general, but, but then even specifically you have a passage like Micah chapter 5 verse 2, which says that the ruler of Israel will come from Bethlehem so so this question here isn't insignificant and so maybe the leaders maybe the leaders they they don't have their hand in the cookie jar wrongly maybe they're not doing anything wrong maybe they do care about truth maybe they want to live their lives in light of God's word they could sing speak O Lord I mean they quote scripture don't they They seem to be concerned with the details that Christ did have to come from Bethlehem. Maybe they really would want to know if Jesus did in fact come from Bethlehem. That he was from the city that the Messiah was supposed to come from. Maybe they have no hidden agenda. I'm going to reread um, that second half of the passage. But but before I do, let your eyes go back into chapter 7 and look at verse 19. This is from last week's passage that was covered. This is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders here. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? That's his questions to them. These were experts in the law, experts in Moses. In fact, they're looking for the prophet, with a capital P, was in some ways looking for the prophet that Moses said would come. He, Jesus says to them, do any of you even know the law? It's like this joke about the really strong guy who's like, bro, do you even lift? Like, but they're, they're looking at people who should know better, and they don't. It's insulting. It seems like Jesus... Thinks they don't actually want to hear about him. It seems like Jesus thinks they don't have their hands around Scripture because they actually care about Scripture. Look at verses 50, excuse me, 45 to 52. We're gonna see that as they suppress this truth, they end up in all sorts of contradictions. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? And learning what he does, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Their suppressing of the truth would be humorous if it were not so serious. You can hear the disdain for the crowd and their words, even calling them accursed. They don't know the law like we do. They're arrogant, common folk, a bunch of hillbilly bumpkins from Galilee, of all places. When a man named Nicodemus tries to bring up a good point, asking them simply to do what their law says they should do to investigate things more, they scoff at him, suggesting he's a bumpkin too. And yet, who's ignorant? Who doesn't know it's them? John wants us to see the irony of what's going on here. They they didn't know, or at least they appear not to know. I think they're not as innocently ignorant as it seems. You don't get the sense that they want the truth or that they think they need it. I suspect, rather, that the religious leaders knew the truth and were suppressing it. For example they say in verse 52 that no prophets come from Galilee. And as experts in the law, they would have known that Jonah and perhaps even Elijah and Nahum, very prominent, prominent uh, prophets in the Old Testament, would have come from Galilee. (laughs) Additionally, you you, you flip over to chapter 8 and they get in this conversation with Jesus and the origins and who has come from God and they mock Jesus' virgin birth by saying, well, at least we are not born of sexual immorality. John 8, 41. I think they know, and they choose not to know. What we're seeing in this conversation with Jesus and these religious leaders is words that Paul would write later about suppressing the truth. It's, it's being dramatized here before us. Paul writes to the church in Rome that those who suppress the truth, that they claim to be wise but become fools. Romans 1, 22. Suppressing the truth leads them to all kinds of contradictions. In fact, suppressing the truth is still common among religious people. We'll hear some say, oh, the Bible's for justice and equality. Well, of course it is. Of course it's for those things, justice and equality. But that same Bible also determines what justice should look like and what sexual ethics look like and who should be married to whom, and when life begins, and so on and so forth. And you can't affirm part of the Bible and then suppress other parts of the Bible, or you end up with all sorts of contradictions. And this cuts religious people both ways, though. Those who know that the Bible cares about morals, care about sexual ethics, care about the value of life, are we, they, not often guilty of overlooking morals in their leaders if they can win However, winning is defined. How many pastors and leaders don't belong in the leadership role because they don't have the character to warrant that role? But we want them there nonetheless because they deliver something to us. Suppressing the truth in one area leads to all sorts of contradictions. And sometimes those looking from the outside see it more clearly than we do. Religious people of all kinds often don't actually want God to speak. We were singing, Lord speak O Lord, speak O Lord, speak O Lord. Okay, we want that. How often do we really want God to speak though? How much are we not actually just saying, "Lord, come affirm the beliefs I already have and help me find verses to do so." That's ex- exactly what these religious leaders did. But thankfully, there's more to this passage than the suppression of truth. We also see That truth, embracing truth, leads to freedom. Look with me at 47 and 48. The Pharisees answered them, these officers, have you also been deceived? Now mark their words. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? They claim that no one among them believes in Jesus. No one could be so dumb, so ignorant, so, as they said of the crowd, accursed then look how John introduces Nicodemus. It's it's, it's supposed to be a little funny. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, we'll come back to that phrase, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? You see the phrase, who's one of them. Have you also been deceived? The officer's hearer. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Implying, of course, of course not, right? Who could have been that silly? And they were wrong. They didn't even know or choosing to ignore. John introduced to us Nicodemus back in chapter 3. Listen to this sentence, chapter 3, verse 1, how Nicodemus is introduced. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. John 3 1. Ruler of the Jews. So so not only, this is name for saying he was part of the Sanhedrin. So so not only is Nicodemus a Pharisee, one of their religious leaders generally, but but he's part of the special council. We we would call him like a board member. um, He makes decisions. And as soon as one of their leaders hints that there might be more to Jesus, they turn on him. That must have hurt. Some of you know this kind of venom. You speak up for Jesus. Maybe just, maybe just a little bit here, like Nicodemus, just, just, just kind of open the door just a little bit. And you get shouted down. And we don't say that around here, they tell you. That doesn't belong here. And so you speak up again, just kindly, and just sort of ask the question, don't we say at our workplace that we stand for inclusion and diversity? So, so I'm just wondering, like, could we have enough diversity to include an evangelical Christian? Should we include them too? That might get you somewhere. Nicodemus tried that approach. It didn't work for him. Back in chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Maybe he came at night because Jesus was busy and that was the only time he could spend time with him. It was the only time he could get close. a pretty busy guy, crowds around him all the time. Maybe Nicodemus goes at night because he doesn't want others to see. Regardless, what follows there in chapter 3 is this lengthy conversation. Jesus and Nicodemus, just them, talking about some of the biggest things in the universe. What it means to follow God. What it means to be changed on the inside, what Jesus calls being born again. And, And I'll just tell you, Nicodemus doesn't come across very well in that conversation, I mean, Jesus, here's a quote, literally, Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? <laughs> like the implied answer is, if, if you're so wise, you should know better. But he doesn't. It's a rebuke. And I'm sure that stung for Nicodemus to be insulted by an unschooled carpenter rabbi. But sometimes Jesus must insult your pride before you can learn to love him. You see, that conversation, that long conversation, even though Nicodemus doesn't come off super well, it's utterly different than the long conversations Jesus has with the religious leaders. We're going to get into chapter 8 in the coming weeks through really all of May. And then and those conversations with Jesus and the religious leaders, much like some of the other ones that have already happened, it's all about gamesmanship and scorn and word play and being right and arrogance. With, with Nicodemus, though, even though he was unaware of truth, the conversation, it, it just feels genuine. Like, like something's going on inside of him. Like the wind is blowing. And he's embracing truth. He's becoming freer and freer. And if it looks that way, It's because he is. You see, the next time we meet him here in chapter 7, it's 18 months or so later. And here he's challenging his peers, calling them to embrace the scriptures they say they believe. Calling them to be people of the word. And if at first he's coming to Jesus at night, now here, broad daylight, in the public, he's nudging them towards Jesus. And some of you are on the same journey. Secretly learning about Jesus, soaking it in, coming in anonymously to church, leaving anonymously, that's okay. It's the okay place to start. You're processing, you're thinking, you're learning. Who is this Jesus? What does he mean? Maybe slowly you're, you're starting to tell people. And that's scary. We meet Nicodemus one more time in John's gospel. It's going to be forever until we get there, so I, just, I want to give it to you now. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read a few verses from chapter 19. You can if you want, you want to turn there. But chapter 19, verses 38 through 40, this is right after the crucifixion, we read this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And they also took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Just think about that. When Jesus died, all the disciples fled. Peter, the loudest leader, denied even knowing Jesus. And here, these men, one called Joseph, another called Nicodemus, together they buried Jesus, giving him the honor he deserves, willing to identify with Jesus no matter the cost. In short, this journey of embracing truth has set him free. It's not worried what people think anymore. Sometimes the grace of God works fast. People are changed in a moment. One day, every Christian will be fully and finally changed in a moment when Christ returns. But sometimes the grace of God works slowly. With Nicodemus, grace worked slowly, but effectively. The word of God, it penetrated his heart. He was, in fact, being born again. And that changed him, just as God has changed us, is changing us, and will change us. As we close and prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I'd, I'd be mistaken if we didn't miss an, something extraordinary about Jesus from this passage. Throughout chapter 7, we hear Jesus discussing his hour or his time. That is, the time he's going to die. For example, verse 30, they, Jesus says, or John records, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. It implied there in those words about the hour and the time and the not being arrested, you, you, just, you, you hear divine intervention. God's going to intervene in such a way that they won't arrest him. He won't die until it's his time, until his hour. And just imagine all the ways that God the Father and the Holy Spirit might have intervened to stop the arrest. There's so many ways God could have intervened, but divine intervention didn't look like this supernatural spiritual force field. Protect Jesus, right? They can't come and get him. He didn't have to fight his way out. He didn't have a special shield made of vibranium, it was a Marvel shield. How does Jesus avoid being arrested? Look at verse forty-six. The officers go there to arrest Jesus, and what do they say? No one ever spoke like this man. The word made flesh spoke, and they were so stunned they couldn't do their one job. When was the last time you were just amazed at the word of God? Just just lost track of time. Has it been too long? Let me read verse 37 and 38. These were the words that John seemed to highlight. I mean, Jesus was there several days, but the words that Jesus highlighted that I think so arrested the attention of the officers who were there to arrest him. Let them just just be asking in your heart that God would amaze you with these words. On the last day of the feast, that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There will be a source of a life inside of you that doesn't end, that doesn't run out. That's there when everything else goes dry. Especially significant words at a feast that culminates with ceremonial water. It wasn't lost on the hearers, what Jesus was saying. He's saying, if you're really thirsty, like deep down thirsty, get your real water from me. Are any of you thirsty? Any of you found yourself different ways, different times, different seasons, maybe even this season, suppressing the truth in one way or another, and just tired of living a double life? Tired of so many contradictions. Trying to be someone over here and someone different over there. If so, you are in a wonderful place. This morning, Jesus is inviting you, anyone, if anyone thirsts. He's inviting you to embrace truth and become free. Churches have different understandings of who should participate in communion. We believe it's open to anyone who's thirsty for living water and for anyone who finds that living water in Jesus. That is anyone who knows they're a sinner and knows the only way they'll be forgiven is in Jesus. If that's you, if, if you hear his voice and love what you hear, this, this meal is for you. If this morning you don't feel comfortable taking communion, if you're, you're here and you just want to process things that, that is okay, you're more than welcome to stay in your seats. Maybe like Nicodemus, you just need more time. As you come forward, those serving communion will um, place the bread in your hand You just hold out your hand and then you're free to take one of the cups. If you're not able to come forward, I'll be serving the worship team and then go back to the tech booth. If anybody wants me to bring it to them, if you're not able to come forward, I'd be happy to do that as well. If you would, just go ahead and hang on the elements until everyone's been served then we'll all participate together. So let's have the worship team co- go ahead and come forward. They're going to lead us in a song as we come forward. And if you're serving communion, um, if you would come up here as well, I'll hand you the trays. And in just a moment, we'll all come forward.